Thank you, Dave. My name's Paul. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Paul. Thanks to you all for coming out and braving the weather. Um, I've written my story down, and there's a reason. I am grateful that through the grace of this fellowship and my higher power, I have been sober since October the 10th, 1990. However, I am as scatterbrained as they come, so to make any sense of my life story, I found it necessary to write it down. This may seem a little unusual, but at least I have a chance to tell it in a descriptive way that makes sense. Keep in mind that sharing about my experiences is not intended to gain anyone's sympathy or to blame past events for my alcoholism. These are just the life experiences I've had, both in sobriety and during my active drinking days. In other words, this is just my way of sharing my experience, strength, and hope with you. Sharing with you today helps me to overcome old fears about public speaking. I used to attend meetings but shared little and never offered to chair. One day, someone said he thought I could chair a meeting if I would just try it. He offered to sit behind me so he could take over if I needed him to. His simple act of friendship and support gave me the courage one day to try chairing a meeting. I was sweating buckets, but Dave was right there to take over if need be. In time, I found this was something I could do all on my own, and that I could actually enjoy sharing in this way. My thanks to Dave for being there and offering the shoulder I needed while I dared to learn new ways to share. His un unconditional friendship helped to heal some issues of the past. Thank you. In thinking about my life, I have struggled with how to tell my story. Starting out with my dysfunctional childhood and moving to the present usually causes people to focus on the negative events and lose sight of the intended message of hope. I could s skip the war stories, but these past events are part of my alcoholism and my path to finding sobriety. I can't blame past events for my disease, but I no longer have a need to hide these skeletons in my closet. So I will start by talking about sobriety in general, focusing on the present, and then finish with the past. I hope to show a comparison of what I am now as to what I was like then. A life of sobriety has given me the opportunity to live life instead of just existing, to no longer feel the daily urge to be comfortably numb, to give up finding my courage at the bottom of every bottle. I have changed my perspective from that of a victim of circumstances to a life I enjoy with a sense of belonging and comfortability. My life fits me. I belong. Those are words that I once thought I would never be able to say. In regards to alcoholism, I have no definitive answer as to what defines it, except to say that sobriety requires complete abstinence from alcohol and a desire to stop drinking. In sobriety, I've learned to love my higher power, love others, even to love myself. I dare to trust and accept. In my drinking days, my conclusions were based on old issues, groundless fears, and memories of the past that no longer serve me today. Sobriety gave me a new outlook and a new perspective. Even though I have survived the cancerous death of my mother, brother, sister, and niece, 
I still have many blessings to be grateful for. For me, a spiritual way of life involves asking my higher power for guidance and daily use of the tenth step to measure where I come up short and what I can do to change it. I find what works and follow it to the best of my ability, trying for a way of life that gives me a sense of belonging and peace. This involves sharing with others and giving every task my best while trying to face my fears and go beyond comfort levels. This process involves allowing others into my heart. I used to ask, who or what is God? I have shortened that to, God is. All I know is faith in a higher power works. I follow a simple Native American belief. Occasionally, we gather in a sweat lodge for prayers and to cleanse ourselves mentally, physically, and spiritually. I have enjoyed this close circle of friends for decades, and I find this experience to be similar to the ones we have right here at Bolden. And just like my AA friends, I can count on these people for their help and love and call me on my bolt when it is needed. I live a retired life in a railroad depot I had relocated to my property. I reclaimed dead forest wood, sent it to the sawmill, and then planed lumber for the restoration. I spent almost a decade to restore a historical building that was slated to be destroyed. These days, I spend some time working to help others with handyman jobs and have made some wonderful new friendships as a result. In 2006, after clear-cutting his lot, a neighbor set his logging waste on fire during the heat of June and left. Prisoners, volunteer firefighters, and others worked for two weeks to stop the fire. At one point, I was told I had five minutes to gather personal effects and get out, as they thought it would not be possible to save my little log home. The fire did come to within 80 feet of the house, but as I was leaving, I saw a volunteer hop onto a small dozer and cut a path through the flames. I am so grateful for his act of heroism. My higher power was with me that day in driving a dozer. In the aftermath of the 2015 Bastrop wildfire, I returned home after a two-week waiting period, expecting to find the worst. I found that my property was not burned at all. But on the way in, I noticed a neighbor picking through the ashes of what was once her home for the last 70 years. I went back to offer condolences and instead heard her message of gratitude and humility. She said it was true. They lost everything. She supposed she'd miss her family photos the most. She lost things, but things are just things that can be replaced. The importance of the situation was that nobody was injured. She said she planned to clear the wreckage, buy a prefab home, and plant a tree right here and right here. She could start over. I agreed. I spent several weeks helping her and other fire victims do just that, taking scrap to the junkyard for them and helping them to clean up. Aside from that event, I believe humility has nothing to do with humiliation or shame, but it helps me to learn where I fit in. How best can I be of service to God to others and to myself. <coughs> Humility is where I learn I'm not God and I'm not any better than anyone else. It helps me accept who I am, warts and all, and that I will never be anything like perfect. We mentioned spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. The same can be said for issues of morality. One year I returned home to find my 18-year-old dog and her small dachshund companion had been poisoned. I arrived in time to watch them both die. I was devastated and heartbroken. 
but eventually visited shelters to walk around. I wanted another red healer and I could not find one. It was at the last shelter where I saw a small male pin-pin, min-pin dachshund dog. <coughs> I passed him by because he wasn't what I wanted, but I decided to go back and take him for a walk. I sat down on a bench and asked him if he thought we could love one another. He hopped up, sat beside me, leaned against me, and looked up as if to say, does this answer your question? <laughs> Through his unconditional love, my heart healed, and later I suspected he must be a precious gift from my higher power. I didn't get what I wanted, but I got exactly what I needed. Going back in time, I arrived in Austin in February 1980 from upstate New York as a heavy drinker and a closeted gay a self-centered teen with a huge chip on his shoulder. Although I was filled with hate, for the first time in my life I felt free. I was deposited in a restaurant parking lot on 12th and Riverside with a trash bag of clothes and four cents in my pocket. I was crying because the situation felt hopeless. A cook came out and gave me a new start by offering me some food, getting me a job as a dishwasher, and allowed me to be a roommate in a trailer. This was my first exposure to the welcoming generosity Texans naturally offer. I love the laid-back atmosphere of Austin. I thought this must be what coming home feels like. Some time passed and I became roommates with another co-worker and her friends. During this time, I fell in love with a young man and felt on top of the world. I would invite him over to spend the night and was amazed that someone thought I was actually worthy of being loved. During this time, one of these homophobic roommates convinced me to take LSD, drink mushroom tea, drink a lot of beer, and hang out with his friends. It turned out to be an ousting of the faggot, and I was the faggot. I found the experience to be devastating and moved out when I became friends with another man who offered me his home and eventually his love. I spent several happy years with him learning how to love and to be loved until the day he explained my drinking was just destroying his life as well as mine, and I needed to leave. He was right. I was ruining his life as well as mine. I had gotten to the point where I came home drunk every night. So I relocated to an apartment on Dawson Street, a block away from Bolton. This was the lowest point in my life. I just wanted to find a way to control my drinking, but it only intensified. Then came the terrifying day when I wanted to quit drinking and realized I couldn't stay sober for one hour, let alone one day. It was this fear and hopelessness which brought me to Bolden. Life was too painful and I thought everyone was out to get me. I wanted to die and I didn't believe in a higher power. I had come to the end of me. I started attending Bolden by sitting on the back steps and chain smoking cigarettes so I could hopefully learn something about my drinking by way of osmosis of what was going on inside. Each day I ran away before the meeting ended, stopping at the store to buy a six pack and celebrate how I made almost a full day sobriety. Finally, an old timer convinced me to come in and for the first time in my life, I said, I'm an alcoholic. I had the jitters bad and I couldn't think about doing those steps, but some sort of change began that day with those simple words. My eternal thanks to John Paul for giving me the beginning to step along and find my way. My last drunk, I was sitting on my dazzling electric blue shag carpet with the shades drawn. 
I had scavenged aluminum cans from the dumpster, most of which were mine to begin with. With my few dollars, I bought the cheapest six-pack of beer I could find and a candy bar for dinner. It wasn't nearly enough to get me where I wanted to be, and I had reached a point where I was drenched in sweat and throwing up at night, needing that drink in the morning just to steady my nerves. I didn't know yet, but I had hit bottom. I was stuck on that first step, as I had learned early on to be self-sufficient and dependent on no one, including God. So after one meeting, I asked an old-timer about step one. He said, didn't you just tell us during the meeting that your life is screwed up and you can't stop drinking? I admitted I had. Congratulations, you just completed step one. Now go do step two. I had no defense against that, and suddenly my excuse to avoid working the steps vanished. I detoxed and sobered up at Oak Springs Treatment Center. Those were the longest 30 days of my life. Filled with anxiety and tremors, but for the first time, I had a full 30 continuous days of sobriety. It was tough and wonderful all at the same time. Somehow, I had to find this higher power. My first angry prayer was, I don't know who the hell you are, but my sponsor says I have to pray to you. You never did anything for me, so screw you. Why would you start doing any miracles for me now? Amen. (laughs) That was my prayer. (coughs) But miracles did start to happen. I found a counselor who worked with me for a long time. I had blocked out entire years of my life, huge chunks of time. I had PTSD issues, and with her help, the past was pieced together using hypnosis, EMDR, and other techniques. One useful tool I learned from her is what she referred to as a walking meditation. She explained it's a good way to calm myself as it is impossible to do this meditation rapidly. This simple method is a useful and easy tool I still use that can be done anywhere. It's a simple process where I walk four steps while breathing in and counting each step. Then I add one step for a pause, and then I walk four steps again while breathing out and counting each step. I learned that worrying is a completely useless waste of time. My counselor told me it's like rocking back and forth in a rocking chair. You feel like you're really accomplishing something, but you're not going anywhere at all. Slowly, I learned to accept myself and others, to trust and to love. I learned to pray and think of something or someone other than me and I learned to give. This was amazingly hard as I grew up being reminded on a daily basis that I was a bastard child, an outcast, a completely undesirable loner, and I was beyond hope of ever being loved. (coughs) I had been taught that life is bitter, cold, and lonely, and I would always be shunned. Love was a fanciful word people used to feel good about themselves. Faith was a whimsical notion based upon fear of a vengeful God, and it would always be a dog-eat-dog world. Changes happened, like one of those maze puzzles with the objective to get the little ball to its final destination. I found sobriety comes with many possible turns and abrupt stops. The destination is the same, but the path I take is dependent upon free will and choices I choose to make. I began by turning my life upside down. I made a career change. I found some sober friends, and I worked those steps. A good foundation is important, and those first three steps are the foundation upon which to build. I 
started with blind faith, surrendering to a power I couldn't define, and slowly I found that I was ready to turn my will and my life over. When I arrived at step four, I started to find hope and the willingness to do whatever I had to do to stay sober. I heard several people say, it is important just to get started on this step. My sponsor told me to pay attention to where I had gone wrong. What was I feeling and what was my part in each resentment? A list came together and it was time for step five, to admit to myself, to God and to another person, the exact nature of my faults was unthinkable. I made a short list with no intention of going too far. But the person I chose to do step five with first began by telling me his fifth step. This act of kindness opened my heart and caused me to blurt out things I swore I would go to the grave with. (coughs) An indescribable relief came with the completion of this step, and he instructed me to do the sixth and seventh step. Here, I experienced another turning point. Making a list of people I had harmed and making amends was difficult, but once again, getting started was the key. I learned that amends are due not only for financial issues, but for where I'd used people emotionally and psychologically. It wasn't just a process of saying I'm sorry, but figuring out how to best resolve issues I created with each person. This process of acknowledging my failures, of being brutally honest with others, with God and with myself, was my attempt to make things right and to acknowledge the humanity of others. This allowed me to let go of some heavy baggage Those remaining steps help me to reflect back upon my day and share with others. And when I have done something that needs to be made right, I try my best to promptly fix it to the best of my ability. I use prayer and meditation to thank God for all he has given. And to simply ask that I do his will and not mine. The 12th step is where I keep it by giving it away. Through talking to other alcoholics, going to meetings, sharing or just sharing my life story. Now it is time to discuss the distant past. This part of my life covers a great deal of my childhood and discusses my mother in a negative sense. In her defense, I must precede that part of my story with a small explanation about her. My mother was the eighth child born to parents who wanted a son. All the previous births were stillborn. My mother grew up feeling unloved and unwanted and tried her best to be the son her father always wanted her to be. She dressed like a man, hunted, chopped wood, and did various carpentry tasks. Eventually, she married a man and had four children. This man was a raging alcoholic, and he would periodically go into the basement to shoot up through the floorboards where he thought family members were standing. On another occasion, he tried to suffocate one of the children with a pillow. Then one night, he burned down the house while everyone was asleep inside. Later, after a stint in the Ogdensburg Asylum, he hung himself. So, her life story in itself is a difficult one and to be kept in mind as the things she experienced that made her the person she was. I grew up in a dysfunctional one-parent household. My mother was honest and a hard worker, but she rarely showed affection and thought that tough love was best. Seagram 7 was her alcohol of choice and we drank every single day. My mother was a mean drunk who found satisfaction lashing out with hurtful words. 
happy when she knew those words hit home. I learned never to trust others or show emotion. I avoided everyone and everything as I learned life was to be bleak and hopeless. Later in life, we both sobered up and my mother fought cancer. We grew to accept each other. Today, my life is a precious gift to be enjoyed. I cherish the companionship of others who help me to feel loved, to understand that I am somebody and I do matter. I was born an illegitimate child during my mother's early 40s after her other four children left home. I was reminded I was just a bastard child conceived by accident in the backseat of a car behind the local bar with a married man. As a small child, we returned to the same bar and I would do a small song and dance routine for pocket change people threw on the floor. It was my job to crawl around and pick up change for mommy's next drink. My mother worked for little pay as a paper mill assembly worker in a hot, loud, dusty factory. For additional income, we salvaged scrap metal from the local dumps, picked and sold berries, raised and canned vegetables, and sold horseradish and fish. We collected soda bottles from the side of the road for deposit money. My earliest memories are as a four-year-old sidekick for my mother's daily drink and drive routine. She would share a few jiggers with me as she thought it was a good parenting skill to shut your child up by getting him drunk. I loved the taste, how it burned going down, the rosy glow, the numbing effect. But I didn't like it when she would eventually ask me to sit on her lap to drive us home. I looked at the road in that little space above the dash and under the top of the steering wheel. She would say, tap my right leg to go, the left one to slow down. In those younger years, my mother worked rotating shifts at the mill, so I was passed around from neighbor to neighbor and various friends. My first sexual experience was when I was molested by a neighbor boy. He would whisper, shut up, say one word, and I'll beat the shit out of you. This experience left me with heaps of guilt, anger, fear, self-doubt, and an overall sense of feeling violated and helpless to do anything about it. Through counseling, I finally found the courage to forgive him and to let go. This was another huge turning point. One day, my mother brought Pat home from work to live with us, and all of a sudden, I had two mommies. I knew early on that I was gay, so I thought this was just fine. We became known as the local white trash dump-picking gay drunks. Pat proved to be jealous and vengeful. We continued the drunk driving routine with roadside pit stops so they could stumble back into the car smelling a urine and sometimes vomit. One time they were in heated argument while Pat was driving. She yelled, I'll kill us all, and stomped on the gas. She vomited on the windshield and dutifully turned on the wipers, but the problem was on the inside. <laughs> she screeched to stop in front of a telephone pole. Every day was a shrieking and yelling contest. Ma felt the best way to say I love you is to scream it. I learned to be ever ready to defuse hurtful situations. Things grew worse when I was about 10 years old. Pat invited me to get undressed and climb into bed. I remember my mother muttering she didn't think it was right. I was very drunk and blacked out. When I woke up, I learned I had struck Pat on the head with a hammer and I looked at photos of my mother's blue barca lounger covered in blood. It was a pretty grim sight. I was laughed at by other kids, so I became the class clown to get attention, thinking any attention was better than none. 
I dreaded coming home on the school bus as the driver would stop directly in front of the roadside shed where my mother and Pat would be cleaning metal for the junkyard. The bus driver would drive away slowly with a big grin on his face. I have memories of the sound of vanishing laughter as the bus went down the road. One Christmas Eve, we were picking junk at the dump. My mother wanted me to climb down in the hole and get something. When I climbed back out, I disturbed a skunk that sprayed us all. We tried tomato juice and Avon to cut down the odor problem, but nothing worked. So we drank some more and left for the Christmas Eve church services. <laughs> Ma staggered to the front row and plopped down. Most of the congregation ended up on the other side of the aisle for some reason. <laughs> One Sunday, my mother needed a drink badly, so she went to the owner's house of the little, of the little liquor store. I'll never forget standing there on the porch while my mother begged for her bottle. Just like a baby, aren't you, needing your bottle? You people disgust me. I'll get your little bottle, only so you will go away, you pathetic little excuse for a human being. We left with my mother muttering, oh, thank you, thank you so much. <clears throat> when I was 15, I, was, I called my estranged half-sister from the corner phone booth and told her I was going to kill myself. So she came and got me. I left as my mother shrieked, if you walk out that door, don't ever come back. Living with my sister proved to be difficult and she bounced from one relationship to another. I came home one day to find her on the floor, barely breathing, but alive with a suicide note for me. I called EMS and the response unit said I saved her life. Her children were removed to foster care until she could prove she could provide a suitable home. Meanwhile, my mother filed a custody suit to regain custody of me. We arrived in court to find a conference table filled with a panel of judges. The lead judge explained that granting custody to anyone other than the living parent would set a new state precedent, so this hearing required all these judges to be there. After telling my story, my sister was awarded custody. My mother punched her lawyer and stormed out. <laughs> so like her. I broke into some buildings, got into trouble, and had to do service work to clean up and pay restitution. <coughs> My sister kicked me out, saying she couldn't trust me anymore, and I found a small efficiency in an old converted motel, lying about my age and pretending to be 18. I was awarded Social Security benefits for being under 18, which barely paid the rent. I worked as a dishwasher and stole food off plates brought back to the kitchen. I thought I was big stuff. Then came the day I tried to kill myself and was signed into a 30-day sanitarium stay. Afterwards, I moved to another little efficiency in a converted garage. That Christmas, I stole a tree someone had dropped at the curb, reasoning they threw it away. After dragging it home, I drank some more and went out to steal the Christmas lights on the tree outside the local fire station. After all, you can't have a tree without lights. I woke up the next morning to find a tree propped in the corner and some lights haphazardly thrown on and a trail of needles leading outside. The news newspaper that year reported the Grinch really did steal Christmas. <laughs> Needless to say, this was one of my amends I had to make. <laughs> this is the turning point in my story where I arrived in <coughs> Texas. Eventually, I came to know my other siblings. They had lived out of state and as far away from my mother as humanly possible, and I had barely known them. 
What a joy it was to discover their love. So, in short, if you haven't already, eventually you will find the ninth step promises do come true. The day will arrive when the compulsion to drink is gone. Three decades later, I find sobriety has taken me places I never thought possible. I am not perfect. I have my faults, and I'm certainly not a walking saint. But my learning continues, and my growth continues each and every day. I fled from home in desperation, and I found my true home here at Bolton. Thank you for listening. I didn't try to gloss over anything. I thought it was important to tell like it is, because really, when you start doing that and leaving things out, um, the true sense of who you are and where you've been doesn't come through. And I wanted to be sure that I did just that. So that's why I told you the things I told you. These are all old issues. I'm done with them. I have moved on. It's taken a number of years, but I'm a different person than I used to be. I don't hate life anymore. I don't hate people anymore. I look forward to friendships that become important to me. That's a huge change. Considering when I was nothing but somebody to be avoided at all costs. So I think that the sobriety is the best thing that ever happened. Some parts of it were hard as hell. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. It wasn't an easy walk. Sometimes were damn hard, but they were worth it. And I wouldn't change anything. That was my life. I lived it and it got me here. I'm happy. So thank you for listening. Yeah.